Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's latest full-on fascist rant on Truth Social on Sunday against the media, in particular NBC and MSNBC, vowing, quote, I say up front, openly, proudly, that when I win the presidency of the United States, they and others of the lamestream media will be thoroughly scrutinized for their knowingly dishonest and corrupt coverage of people, things, and events. Joining us is Ann Nelson, an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media, and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Prize for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was the director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. And her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. Then we'll examine the damaging evidence against the defiant Senator Menendez, who for the second time is facing corruption charges, having dodged the first case due to a mistrial in part caused by a Supreme Court decision lowering the bar against political corruption. Joining us is David Dayen, who is the executive editor of The American Prospect, the winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize. He's the author of Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story, and his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. We'll discuss his latest article at The American Prospect, Breaking the Menendez Cycle. Then finally, we'll assess the role immigration will play in the upcoming elections as Biden comes under increasing pressure from Republicans and Democrats as thousands per day arrive at the southern border, many from Venezuela, where one in four Venezuelans have fled their country since 2015. Joining us is Doris Meisner, former commissioner of the United States Immigration and Naturalization Service under President Bill Clinton, and a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute, where she directs the Institute's U.S. immigration policy work. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, Background Briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Anne Nelson, an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Prize for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was the director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. And the latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anne Nelson.
Thank you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Anne. And former President uh, Donald Trump had a real rant meltdown, or whatever you want to describe it, on Truth Social on Sunday, saying the U.S. media is almost all dishonest and corrupt. But Comcast, with its one-sided and vicious coverage by NBC News, and in particular MSNBC, should be investigated for its country-threatening treason. And of course, only it was what a week ago Sunday that Trump was on NBC News's Meet the Press. But that aside, he went full-on fascist in this rant against the press, threatening to shut down the press uh, if he becomes president again, or shut down the press that's not favorable to him. So... There's no mystery there. When is the country going to get the F word wake up here? That this guy is serious and we've seen this bad movie before. You wrote about it in the Red Orchestra, the Berlin Underground and the Circle of Friends who resisted Hitler. Yeah, and uh, as it happens, a new edition of Red Orchestra just came out this week with a new introduction that makes the connections more explicit. Uh, You know, because people in the United States, you know, almost think that World War II started with, you know, Pearl Harbor. But I think it's very instructive to go way back to the beginnings of the Nazi dictatorship in 1933. And what you're talking about with Trump was straight out of their playbook. Uh, What they did was close down the, the, not just the opposition newspapers, but anything that was mildly critical. And then they created their own media system under the administration of Joseph Goebbels that just presented a one-sided vision to the German people. Um, And after a few years, they had no alternative. So it was part of the resistance that I write about was just finding out what the facts were and trying to get them to the public. And that became this massive undertaking. So Trump would be much more comfortable with only the court press that, uh, you know, is, is a cheerleading section for him and his operations and his and the, and the forces that brought him to power uh, really went a long way in creating that media system. You look at the Christian broadcasting, so-called, uh, like Pat Robertson's Christian Broadcasting Network. You look at uh, fundamentalist outlets that like uh, the, the Family Research Council, where it's just you know, one-sided adulation of Trump, along with a couple of favorable views of possible other contenders who would follow the same playbook. Um, and and as they drown out other news media in their in in the given states, they have really taken over uh, something like a propaganda function in much of the country. Well, I would be able to make fun of him if it weren't for the fact that Trump is a serious contender and he's neck to neck uh, with Biden in the polls. And we're learning now that the Biden administration is very concerned about this no labels project that's launched by Mark Penn, who's a thick fixture on Fox News, who's a very cynical operator. He's obviously going to make a ton of money out of uh, this campaign since he'll be running it. At the same time, it's clearly a spoiler campaign because uh, if you look at what happened in 2020, even though Biden won 8 million more votes in the popular vote, he only won uh, the Electoral College by something like 44,000 votes in a few key swing states. And most of them came from disaffected Republicans. So if you give disaffected Republicans and independents an alternative 
way to vote, because it's always hard in this tribal politics of ours, for Republicans to vote for Democrats, then you can see the danger of no labels, of taking votes away from Biden. Well, and it's not just no labels. You've got this spoiler campaign being run by Bobby Kennedy, which is hugely embarrassing to the rest of the Kennedy family. And in fact, uh, his his uh, cousin or relation, Carolyn Kennedy's son, just, just ran a viral ad denouncing Bobby Kennedy for for his his campaign that is combined with anti-vax an anti-vax campaign it's it's just really a regrettable stain on the the Kennedy name then you have Cornell West uh who's who's you know uh, angling for the African-American vote and as you say it this has has real consequences you had Jill Stein in a former election who who really accounted for um, some votes that that, you know, could have made a significant difference in a swing state. And all I can say is that with many of these campaigns, uh, I don't know that you can prove Russian collusion, but certainly it 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 pleases uh, the gentleman in the Kremlin to see this kind of dysfunction happening. Well, in Jill Stein's case, I think she was a useful idiot for the Kremlin. I mean, RT paid for a lot of her campaign, and they hosted the Green Party convention on RT, which is run by the Russian government. And there she was sitting next to Putin on the 10th anniversary of RT in a round table with General Flynn, truly a disgusting and crazy, dangerous guy, along with uh, Julian Assange's father and others that the Kremlin feel they owe something to. So, uh, I don't Yeah, think... you're right, Ian. We can call that collusion. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <Go ahead. laughs> point, so, point made. So, but let, let's talk a little bit about, I mean, I was going to get to what I possibly is a, is a little less depressing, and that is the part. We know that Trump spent his presidency watching TV. That was his main occupation when he was in the White House. He was so thoroughly incompetent, he didn't know what he was doing, but he watched TV. It's like an actor watching the reviews before he actually has done the performance. <laughs> That's the mentality of this insecure guy who comes out of television at any rate. So I think he's melting down to some extent because particularly singling out MSNBC, on Monday night, of course, MSNBC, Rachel Maddow will have the whistleblower from the White House, who is probably going to prove to be very effective, and her book is just out as well. I'm talking about Cassidy Hutchinson. So, Anne, do you think there's an element of panic in Trump by having this outburst against the press? Well, I think that he's got a very volatile personality, and we've seen this in in many instances. You know, his his uh, relation, Mary Trump, who is a psychologist, has analyzed him, and he he is uh, neither very stable nor is he a genius. So that's yeah, um, two against two. And I think that what happens is that he he gets triggered. But let's let's remember he he has had a vendetta against professional journalists for a long time, and if you go back into his campaign rallies, uh, you can see him almost I mean in, in in some cases urging violence against journalists who are covering 
the the affairs. And so playing on this whole idea that that news organizations are the enemy uh, is is very much part of his his portfolio. And I think that he probably had advisors in the White House, even someone like Mark Meadows, who would kind of tamper him down from time to time. I get the feeling that with everybody in his circle uh, facing, you know, various levels of prosecution, the the controls are off, right? And as he gets more excitable, his his reactions get more flamboyant. But can he go too far with Republicans? I mean, uh, it was astounding that he attacked John McCain early on, and yet that didn't seem to hurt him. But now he's going after General Milley. Do you think? he could go too far. I mean, the idea that what first appalled Milley was that they went to a a Pentagon ceremony where a wounded uh, vet sang the national anthem, and I think he'd lost limbs in Iraq or Afghanistan. And after that, Trump turned to Milley, and I think it was like Milley's first day on the job. He said, I don't want any of these wounded people. They're an embarrassment. You know, don't ever do that again. I mean, mm-hmm. you'd think that the military vote in this country would be appalled at this man, that he disrespects the wounded warriors to the point where he doesn't want, you know, wants them out of sight, out of mind, and then he wants heroes. And that's why he went after John McCain, because he was a prisoner. I mean, this is a guy that's never served in the military, is a total chicken hawk, wouldn't know what he's doing. Any chance of a defection in uh, right-wing military circles? I think that right now uh, the voting blocks are fairly hardened. And what you see in the polling is that uh, there's a majority of Republicans who are standing by him. And I, I don't see those numbers shifting very much. Um, but but you you so but, but you have to look at the overall uh, picture, and you look at the electorate, and you know you have in in many cases like half of the population voting, and a very close breakdown uh, between the people who do vote. You know, roughly half are Republicans, roughly half are Democrats. And a very tiny percentage goes back and forth between elections. However, as you say earlier about Biden, the Electoral College plays a disproportionate role. And so you can have a victory in, well, Hillary Clinton won the majority of the popular vote, but she lost the Electoral College. Mathematically, we can do that until we reform the Electoral College. So even if the majority of Republicans vote for Trump, it looks as though at the moment that he is probably going to win the primaries unless something unforeseen happens in the legal process or elsewhere. But even so, if you have the Democrats and the remaining Republicans uniting behind Biden, he would probably win. That's where the question of no labels and the other spoilers come in, because if they divide that difference, they can either toss it to Trump or they can create enough chaos that bad actors can exploit it. 
and take what they learned from January 6th and refine it uh, in order to manipulate the Electoral College or other aspects of the electoral system. So not only should we be on high alert, we should be on high alert looking in about four directions at once. Right. Well, just in recalling what Trump had to say in the first debates about Megyn Kelly, Howard Feynman, columnist and commentator, said female political and media antagonists really cause blood to come pouring out of Trump's eyes. And he's referring to the fact that Monday night, of course, tonight, Rachel Maddow will have Cassidy Hutchison on. And that may well have been what triggered Trump's rant on True Social on Sunday, attacking MSNBC. So I guess any chance of Trump I mean, he, maybe there's a masochistic streak there that he, he watches his critics. Otherwise, why would we be having this outburst? And uh, any chance of him turning red in the face and choking on a Big Mac? Well, I, you know, uh, not if he throws enough ketchup at the wall. But, <laughs> I, you know, he, people describe him, I think the best description is, as a schoolyard bully. And name calling is is you know what he does, uh, trying to humiliate people. He doesn't really have the ability to conduct a policy debate. He doesn't know anything about policy. He doesn't have any policies. So that's why he's but, avoiding the debates, right? Well, yeah, but he also has nothing to gain from them, no. right? Um, but but. He what he does do very effectively is is agitate his base. Um, now the question goes to the broader electorate and the public about whether people respond to that the same way that they responded to him as as a reality TV star. It was the same characteristics. You insult, you crack mean jokes about people, you call people names, you make fun of disabled people. Um, it's really you know, like the lowest form of, of the American character. We are so much better than that, I, I have to believe. And yet that those qualities do exist in our culture. And he kind of left them out of the dark closet. Um, but what is, you know, concerning to me is whether the media systems that they've assembled and, you know, they have a whole uh, lineup of secondary characters that are under the sway of of the right-wing contingent that you see so being so effective in the House of Representatives, taking Kevin McCarthy hostage uh, and voting on all kinds of measures to the detriment of the American people, you know, shutting down the government out of pure malice, right? Um, These same people are going to be trying to hold all of the Republican field of candidates hostage. So you have uh, whoever the likely ones are, whether it's, I don't know, uh, DeSantis, Ted Cruz, and so on, uh, having to appeal to this wing of the party, which is dominant. Uh, They're very worried that Trump is going to win the primaries because, again, he has his hardened core of Republican supporters, but his crossover vote isn't looking so good. Biden has his debilities as well. So all I can say is that overall, both sides have great weaknesses. And then you've got the uncertainties of the various legal actions that are playing out at different paces. Well, Ann Nelson, I thank you so much for joining us here today.
Well, thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Anne Nelson, who's an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Prize for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalism and was a director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. And her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. We're going to take a peace station break and back examining the damaging evidence against the defiant Senator Menendez, who for the second time is facing corruption charges, having dodged the first case due to a mistrial in part caused by the Supreme Court's decision lowering the bar against political corruption. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Dayen, who is the executive editor of The American Prospect, the winner of the Ida and Studs Terkel Prize, and the author of Fat Cat, the Steve Mnuchin story. And his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And he has an article at The American Prospect, Breaking the Menendez Cycle. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Dayen. Thanks for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And as you point out in your article, David, in 2016, the Supreme Court, in a unanimous ruling, did their best to write public corruption out of the criminal code. The court ruled that former Virginia Governor Republican Bob McDonald and his wife were not guilty of using their influence to benefit a dietary supplement company whose CEO gave the couple more than $165,000 in personal gifts and loans. Now, this ruling came down in the midst of the first corruption trial against Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey, chair of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And that looks as like it caused the mistrial, did it not? Yeah, it was a constant presence in that initial case. Uh, th- this happened in 2016, in June of 2016, I believe, is when the McDonald verdict came down at the Supreme Court. The uh, Menendez trial was throughout 2017. And uh, as I recall, the judge even brought up the trial, the Menendez or uh, the McDonald trial, I should say, during the Menendez case, calling it, you know what, at one point and threatening to throw out the charges because it didn't rise to the standard. And let's say what that standard is. Uh, it, it basically the Supreme Court narrowed the definition of bribery uh, incredibly. They, they said that a public official to be to be found guilty for this would have to take a, quote, formal exercise of government power in a direct quid pro quo for money or something of value. It would have to be a direct one to one relationship, almost like there was a piece of paper that said, I will conduct this official action on your behalf 
in exchange for $100,000. It, it's almost has to be that airtight to actually rise to the level of bribery under uh, this Supreme Court ruling. And because most and because pretty much every case isn't really like that um, in in the case of the first corruption indictment of Menendez, which involved an ophthalmologist friend of his who he took trips with and allegedly engaged in trying to help the man's business. The court came back. The jury said, you know, several members, I believe it was split about 10 to with 10 members of the 12 person jury saying, we don't think this rises to the level of the standard outlined in uh, the, the McDonald versus U.S. ruling. So because of that, it was ruled a mistrial. It was a hung jury. The Justice Department eventually dropped the case. They dropped the case in Jan the end of January 2018. A week later, Menendez returns to become the ranking Democrat on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And almost at the exact same time, he meets the woman that becomes his wife. And in this new indictment, his co-conspirator, who he ends up uh, becoming involved with her friends for whom, according to the indictment, he takes on uh, official acts as a senator in exchange for money and gifts. And her friend being this whale hunter, this Egyptian and, and a couple of other sleazy guys that were helping the Egyptian government. Yeah. But what explains, though, David, the fact that the Supreme Court voted unanimously to weaken the definition of, of political corruption, with uh -huh. the liberal senators joining the conservatives? Now, I'm, I'm not surprised that Justice Thomas and Alita, for example, have been taking gifts from billionaires routinely, why they would vote to lower the, the bar, but I don't understand why the Liberals voted to lower the bar. Well, I mean, we did, to be perfectly frank, we just got out of a situation where uh, Sonia Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor, was selling uh, uh, children's books and, and trying to push them into the hands of uh, various uh, uh, companies that sold them in order to go up the bestseller list. That may be a much more subtle form of this sort of influence peddling and this, the, the, the games that are played at the Supreme Court. But at the same time, you know, and there, there may have been considerations around uh, if we all go, this happens often at the Supreme Court, if we all go unanimous, then the ruling isn't quite as uh, hard right as it could be otherwise. Uh, they, you know, obviously this was a situation where there were five conservatives on the court and so it may have been sort of a, a bar, a form of bargaining on per, uh, on behalf of uh, the other the liberal members of the court. Uh, but the the outcome is the same. I mean, public corruption has been defined down. That is a, an, a, a fact. And because it's been defined down, a lot of cases that otherwise may have risen to the level of bribery or corruption have been tossed out uh, or have been unable to get a conviction. Uh, Menendez, this, this current case is so comical that uh, maybe that new standard won't stop him. But uh, he certainly seems confident that because of how narrow these statutes are now, 
that he's going to be able to get off. And, and he is certainly fighting these charges and he's not uh, leaving Congress and, and, and he is uh, very defiant. But specifically, though, I wanted to zero in on what happened after he gets off in February of 2018. He meets yeah. and begins dating Nadine Aslanian, who was a friend for many years of this Egyptian whale, Hana, who has this halal meat business that he has contracts with the Egyptian military. And these two other characters are also friends, Jose mm-hmm. Uribe and Fred Diabis. So it looks as though... This is almost like a honey trap, you know. They they put this this buxom woman in front of, uh, dangle him in front of this corrupt politician uh, who's already shown his propensity for taking bribes, and the rest is history. I mean, I think what this really goes back to, and I have no evidence of of, of that happening, but there is some circumstantial uh, uh, things that you can look at. What this goes back to is that Democrats. Uh, after seeing Menendez go on trial, have this relationship with this other gentleman who he was alleged to have done uh, favors for in exchange for in exchange for trips and junkets, which were not uh, actually disclosed under Senate rules. Uh, the Senate Ethics, Ethics Committee said that he violated Senate rules and federal law in that case by failing to disclose these gifts. And none of that really seemed to matter because Menendez was allowed to get his position on the Foreign Relations Committee back. And that position is very important because uh, in terms of arms sales, in terms of foreign aid to uh, other countries and particularly to their militaries, the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, both the chair and the ranking member, the ranking Republican and the ranking Democrat, have the ability to hold up those sales or to green light those sales. Uh, they get sort of a, a, a role in the process. And that gives whoever's in that position a whole lot of power to uh, dictate whether or not countries around the world get the benefits of whether it's money or whether it's arms shipments from the United States, which obviously, as you know, is, is, is enormous. And so why are Senate Democrats putting back in that position someone who, whether or not he beat the rap because the Supreme Court defined down public corruption, why put someone in that position uh, who the Senate Ethics Committee admonished, who failed to disclose these gifts, who was operating on behalf of trying to help the business of this individual uh, it was all very fishy and well-known well before Democrats decided, yeah, go ahead, back on this committee that has this huge amount of power. And I think that's the core problem here is that Democrats should have known that uh, someone with this propensity would have acted again, and yet they let him back into that position. And these are the same Senate Democrats who railroaded Al Franken, right? Over something indeed. comparatively and trivial. Trivial, indeed, indeed, and and nobody. Uh, well, I shouldn't say nobody. Uh, two members now of the Senate have come forward and said that in light of these new allegations, uh, Senator Menendez should resign. One of them is John Fetterman, who just got there. The other is uh, Senator Sherrod Brown uh, from Ohio, who was 
you know, in in the Senate at the time of the Franken situation. Uh, but nobody else has come out, despite the fact that virtually every major public official in the state of New Jersey, except for Cory Booker, who is his Senate colleague, uh, but everybody else has come out and said that, that Menendez should step down. Uh, that's including the governor. That's including, these are all Democrats, the governor, the heads of the state legislature, most of the congressional delegation, except for Menendez's son, who is actually a Congress member uh, from New Jersey, uh, but almost everybody else. Uh, we have now this candidate, uh, Andy Kim, who's a Congress member, uh, who's going to run against Menendez for his Senate seat because Menendez said he is not stepping down or going anywhere. And uh, so we are seeing some circling of the wagons in New Jersey. But uh, Chuck Schumer has said, you know, Menendez has the, the right to, uh, you know, act in his own defense and and contest these charges. And he's innocent until proven guilty, which is true, of course. But uh, the optics of this, we are heading into an election cycle. Menendez is up for reelection at the same time when uh, the likely Republican candidate for president is facing four separate indictments and a whole host of, of charges involving uh, both corruption and, and many other charges. And if you have uh, on the Democratic side, a someone like Robert Menendez, who is facing federal corruption trials where they literally found gold bars in his home, high, uh, hidden away, uh, it just completely blunts the argument that Democrats want to make in the 2024 election. And so the idea that they think they can just sort of skate by and that won't be noticed and brought up at every opportunity by the Republicans is just ludicrous. Right, and you mentioned optics. My God, along with the hundred thousand dollars worth of gold bars, there was five hundred thousand dollars in cash. I mean, Correct. stuffed in all kinds of places, and including his own jackets embroidered with the and, caucus city heat heads. You know, and they were put in envelopes that were tested and found to have the DNA of the individuals who are alleged to have bribed him, and 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 his wife. So. Uh, today, Menendez came out and said, uh, that was my personal money that I keep in case of an emergency. Uh, I don't know who keeps half a million dollars in their house in case of an emergency. He, he tried to relate it back to his Cuban upbringing in case he had to, I guess, scurry away quickly in the night. I don't think that is a feature of, a, of, of America <laughs> terribly much. Uh, he, has, he has tried to sort of use this this uh, his Cuban heritage, his Latino heritage to say he's, he's being singled out and railroaded. I, I, I think it's the conduct that he's been alleged to have engaged in, not uh, who he is. That is the reason that he is facing federal ch uh, uh, charges for the second time. First senator in history to be facing federal charges in two separate unrelated incidents, uh, according to the Senate uh, historians. Um, uh, this, this is, this is really a mess for, uh, for Democrats and, and, you know, in, in some part for our democracy. Right. And it's an easy fix. Is it? The Democratic governor, Phil Murphy, could replace uh, him, Menendez, with another Democrat. So, um, sure. but only but if he course, steps down. 
And right. he won't. I mean, he won't because he's he's using the power of the Senate, uh, the tools that he has at hand. He'd be otherwise naked if he gave up. So, uh, couldn't happen to a nicer guy. But um, it's really sad. And I thank you for joining us, David. And again, I've been speaking with David Ayen, who is the executive editor of the American Prospect, the winner of the Ida and Studs Turkle Prize and the author of Chain of Title, How Three Ordinary Americans Uncovered Wall Street's Great Foreclosure Fraud and Fat Cat, The Steve Mnuchin Story. And his latest book is Monopolized, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. And he has an article at the American Prospect, Breaking the Menendez Cycle. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back assessing the role immigration will play in the upcoming elections as Biden comes under increasing pressure from Republicans and Democrats as thousands per day arrive on the southern border. Like the castle in his corner In a medieval game I foresee terrible trouble And I stay here just the same I'm a fool to do your dirty work Oh yeah I don't want to do your dirty work No more Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Doris Meissner, who's a former commissioner of the United States Immigration and Naturalization Service under President Bill Clinton, and a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute, where she directs the Institute's U.S. immigration policy work. Welcome to Background Briefing, Doris Meissner. Thank you. Thank you. Pleased to be here. Well, thanks for joining us, Doris. And obviously, at the heart of this threat, to shut down the U.S. government from a very small minority of the House Freedom Caucus, but nevertheless they are the tail that wags the dog of Speaker McCarthy, so you can't ignore them, and they're not particularly coherent about what they're doing. But uh, essentially, is this demagoguery? I mean, what kind of solutions are they offering up to this complex and growing problem? Well, if you're speaking about the immigration issues that are always contentious in the Congress, there certainly are some immigration issues involved in this budget debate, but that's not really the main focus of the disagreement in the debate. The main focus is spending and the frustration of the members of the Freedom Caucus that the Speaker did not reach spending cut levels in the debt ceiling discussions earlier this year that they wanted. So they're now using the issue of appropriations bills as a way of resurfacing and re-leveraging and re-litigating within the Republican caucus those issues about the debt ceiling. But the, the talks fell apart last Thursday because... They couldn't come to an agreement over the defense appropriations. And at the heart of that disagreement was that the Freedom Caucus wants to cut off funds for Ukraine, saying that we don't need to spend money on Ukraine, we need to spend money on the border. Right, but that's a very indirect way of treating the issues at the border. But, of course, the border is very much part of the game plan and agenda of the really uh, strong Freedom Caucus people in the House. But I think from what we're seeing and what we learn about these negotiations, that whatever 
the issues are that the Freedom Caucus wants to raise on the border, that's not likely to be the deciding question with whether or not there's a shutdown. So moving on then from the shutdown to the issue itself, which is one that's very vexing, and it's clearly one that President Biden's going to have a tough time navigating, right? Because you've got these buses arriving here in Los Angeles that the Texas governor cynically and callously ascending, full of migrants. And then you've got the same happening in New York, where the mayor is complaining that the cities can't handle it. This looks as if it's going to be a major election year issue. Would you agree, Doris? Oh, yes, absolutely. There's not much question, but that uh, even prior to these current numbers, uh, things that were happening in the past year and um uh, as you mentioned governor abbott and governor DeSantis took a uh a stab at it as well uh, earlier last year it's very clear that republicans are positioning the immigration issue and their frustration with this administration's policies as a as a major issue for the 2024 elections and the difficulty for the administration, and it would be any administration at this point, is that we are really now seeing, not only in the United States, but globally, an entirely new era of displacement and levels of displacement. And it's hitting this hemisphere in ways that we're not accustomed to in the past, but it is part of a broad uh, pattern around the world. And so what you have is this administration having come into office with a commitment to pushing back the very stringent policies of the prior Trump administration, but at the same time confronting these really dramatic changes in the middle of a pandemic, and then the pandemic finally waning and all of the built-up pressure during that time, then beginning to be seen at the borders, uh, as well as the difficulties of an administration that really campaigned coming into office in 2020 on border control, but humane enforcement. And the struggle that the administration has had to find that balance has been there from the beginning of the administration, and it is really complicated by these broad international forces that we are now experiencing at the U.S.-Mexico border and throughout our hemisphere. So let's talk about those pressures. There's already the U.S. government, uh, the Biden administration, are giving temporary protected status to an additional 472,000 Venezuelans, almost half a million many of whom are arriving in New York. Just last week, they were arresting 8,000 people per day at the Rio Grande. Are those accurate figures? Those are, those are accurate figures, yes. The, the, the story of Venezuela and the picture were, uh, regarding Venezuela is really a very serious one because Venezuela has been basically 
imploding for uh, years now, but until very recently, almost all of the Venezuelans who were leaving their country were going to neighboring countries. I think something like five to seven million people have left Venezuela in the last uh, uh years, five, seven, eight years, but they've gone almost entirely to Colombia and also to Peru and Chile, Brazil, uh, Ecuador. Uh, And so we in the United States were not really feeling the effects of that displacement until quite recently. But what's now happened is that South America and those neighboring countries have had a much more difficult time recovering from the economic impacts of the pandemic and in the struggle to recover in ways that have not been nearly so difficult for the United States, populations that were on the margins in those neighboring countries and did have a foothold while those economies were doing all right, are now finding themselves to have been without any real possibilities to continue to hang on where they are. So a lot of this migration has been from of, of Venezuelans from other countries in Central America where things were getting conditions were getting worse and worse. But then along with that comes additional out-migration from Venezuela itself. And that has contributed, the two of them together, to the kinds of numbers that we've now seen in the last year or so. And it's a particularly complicated and frustrating situation for the United States because these people are leaving and they are escaping from very severe hardship and dictatorship. But at the same time, we, the United States, do not have diplomatic relations with Venezuela. And so our ability to enforce our own immigration laws in a way that would make it possible for some Venezuelans who would have a reason to be eligible to stay in the United States, but then returning other Venezuelans who are not eligible, we can't do that because Venezuela as a country is not a country with which we have any kind of a of a of a you know a embassy or consular presence, and they won't take back the return of their nationals. So it's uh, it, it 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 it's it's a very well, it's a it's a challenge, and uh, and and you know what the administration has done in an effort to create a set of policies that both bring about levels of control, but also recognize that we want to have orderly flows and some degree of predictability and access for people who have need to come to the United States. The administration has created a a special program for Venezuelans and nationals of a few other countries to be able to come to the United States illegally. But unfortunately, they're not only using that program, they're also continuing to come in large numbers uh, illegally. So, 
Well, one in four Venezuelans have fled Venezuela since 2015, which is just a shocking statistic. But then if you go back to the war in the civil war in El Salvador in the 1980s, one quarter of the population of El Salvador ended up here in the United States. So it's hard not to extricate uh, foreign policy from emigration. And President Biden sent Vice President Harris down to Central America early in his administration to see if you could deal with this problem at its root cause, so to make life more livable for people in Honduras and El Salvador and Guatemala and now, of course, uh, by extension, in uh, Venezuela. Um, Obviously, there's a pretty mixed review on that, to say the least, right? Well, yes, and the issue of root causes is, of course, at the root of of all of this. I mean, the conditions that people are fleeing, but the 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 likelihood of those conditions changing at all, in any way in the near term is very very low, and the solutions that are required in order for root causes to be addressed and changed effectively is also uh, those solutions are very are long term. I mean, they're they're in the decades rather than in the months. And so while root causes strategies as a longer term measure are essential, they have to be part of what it is that the United States and other countries in the world do, but they are not going to provide the kinds of answers that are required when facing flows, as you said, of sometimes reaching seven or 8,000 a day coming to the United States. And, um, um, and, and, and all countries are not alike. I mean, it is, Venezuela is really a different case from Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. I mean, Central American countries are countries that have gone and continue to go through very difficult times, but they are countries that are struggling to become uh, uh, democracies. They're struggling to become part uh, 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 countries that have effective economies. That's not the case in, in Venezuela. I mean, Venezuela is an out-and-out dictatorship, and it is a country where there is no reason to believe that anytime soon there will be the kind of leadership and the kind of commitment to improving the lives of the vast majority of its population in the way that you see at least to some degree in Central America. And, you know, one of the things that is so remarkable about how quickly the picture is changing is that if we had been having this conversation two years ago, Central Americans would have been the major challenge. And that was the real change in the flows from the traditional Mexican flow of decades up until about the middle of the 20 teens. But that flow of Mexicans that really began in the 1970s, that began to be overtaken starting in 2014 by Central Americans. And already Central Americans now are as a share of the population of people coming um, uh, without any status uh, are being eclipsed and over, overcome by other nationalities. I mean, it may very well be that once the data are in for the end of this fiscal year, which is just another couple of weeks, we may see 
that non-Mexican, non-Central American nationalities, it's possible, will outnumber Mexicans and Central Americans. So those kinds of changes taking place that quickly and the range of differences uh, 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 within those population groups of what it is that people are fleeing and how it is that we receive them has complicated this landscape enormously and very quickly. And, of course, there have been better governments, more democratic governments emerging in Honduras and Guatemala just recently, but the human suffering, though, is, is increasing. For example, the Venezuelans often go through the Panama's Darien Gap, which is just hideous snakes and predators and people are murdered and raped on the way and robbed routinely. They finally get into Mexico, and then people get stuck in Mexico forever. So even if the Mexican flow is not as high as it was before, Mexico is having to deal with a lot of extra problems, surely, and a lot of these people in limbo in Mexico are also being preyed upon by gangs and uh, drug cartels, etc. Well, that's correct, and, you know, Mexico's role in all of this also has changed dramatically. Mexico used to be, until really quite recently, decade or 15 years ago, uh, primarily uh, a source country for immigration. But then it increasingly became a transit country, and now it's also become a destination country because there certainly are people coming from Central America, for instance, Guatemalans being the primary group, that are prepared to stay in Mexico and work in Mexico. And Mexico actually is a country whose demography is changing. It's becoming more of an aging society, and it is actually interested in people foreign-born from other countries coming to be working in its labor markets and, 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 and employment sectors, particularly in southern Mexico. But, as you say, at the same time, Mexico is still a country of cartels and of extreme violence and serious corruption. And so it is a real mixture, uh, you know, mixture of, 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 of circumstances. The, the, the Mexican, um, you know, dimension of this as a neighboring country and as a country with which the United States cooperates, but also has, you know, real where there are real issues to solve, things that have to do with fentanyl and other contraband, um, uh, you know, also also is a real change and a, and a real complication here. So just in the last minute then, Doris, what do you expect in this election year coming up? I mean, are the Republicans just going to demagogue and talk about bringing back Trump's wall? And what is Biden going to do? Because he's, but not only is he getting slammed by Republicans, a lot of Democrats are putting pressure on him as well. And this is obviously going to be an election year issue. It's definitely going to be an election year issue. It is certainly going to be for Republicans, as you describe it. I think we must expect, or we have, we, we surely can expect a great deal of rhetoric and a great deal of um, even trying to up the ante from what uh, we saw during the Trump years. I mean, for instance, DeSantis as a candidate is talking about sending the military into Mexico, the American military, that would be fundamentally an act of war, um, and other really extreme 
uh, uh, such measures. Where the Biden administration is concerned, I think that the you know what the Biden administration hopes to do is basically be able to neutralize the issue as fully as possible within the Democratic Party and this action last week of granting temporary protected status to Venezuelans was a part of that because the ability of people to work when they're in the United States does really take the pressure off where some of the cities are, where some of the large cities are concerned. And also because we have quite a roaring labor market at this point where employers and the governors of many states are asking, please allow people to work. Please let us have workers. We want people to work. And so I I think you will find a continued effort on the part of the administration to use as many aspects of its executive authority as possible to manage the situation and to be making the case that at, 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 at the, fundamentally we are a country that is a country of immigration. We need immigration going into the future. We want to be doing it in a way that is orderly. We need to do it in a way that is predictable and humane. And here are the things that we have done in order to achieve that. But we still are up against mega new global forces that require continued attention to this and ultimately attention by the Congress to change our laws in ways that make them be more realistic. Well, Doris Meiser, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Doris Meisner, who's a former commissioner of the United States Immigration and Naturalization Service under President Bill Clinton, and is a senior fellow at the Migration Policy Institute, where she directs the Institute's U.S. immigration policy work. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past